right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Strange Arrivals is a production of iHeart3D Audio. For full exposure, listen with headphones. In the heart of the great Southwest, between Arizona and Texas, and bordering on the Republic of Mexico, lies the sunshine state in this land of ours, the state of New Mexico. One of the largest, yet one of the least populated of all of our states, New Mexico was admitted to the Union as recently as 1912. Since Coronado brought the first horses and sheep into the territory, the raising of livestock has been one of New Mexico's most important industries. At one time, sheep dominated the state's agricultural life, feeding, clothing, and helping support her people. Today, cattle are perhaps of equal importance. The cattle roundup is a familiar sight in the great southwest. Cowboys driving the cattle to shipping points along the railroad. And along the way, a man's got to eat. The grub is plenty good, too, eh, partner? I'm Toby Ball, and this is Strange Arrivals. Episode 9, The Land of Enchantment. The beginning of the modern UFO era is generally pegged to Kenneth Arnold's UFO sighting around Mount Rainier in 1947. But arguably the most famous UFO event in history took place less than three weeks later in Roswell, New Mexico. I'm sure the story is familiar, at least in its outline. But you may have the sense that it has played an important part in UFO lore since the wreckage of something was found in the scrub on Mac Brazel's ranch. But that's not the case. Retired Air Force pilot James McGahey. The Roswell incident was never in Project Blue Book. It wasn't a case in there. It was never investigated by the United States Air Force. Earlier this season, we heard Joe Nickel talk about his model of the Roswellian syndrome. It's a five-step process that some UFO stories undergo. First, there's a UFO encounter. Second, the encounter is quickly explained. Third, the story doesn't really go away. It just goes underground. Fourth, 
While underground, the story is subjected to what Nickel calls myth-making processes, as some mixture of rumors, changing memories, hoaxing, and so on, is added to the original story. Finally, fifth, the story resurfaces in a new form that explains away the original skeptical explanation. I don't want to spend much time on the actual 1947 Roswell event, since many of you probably know all about it. So here's a brief recap. Skeptical investigator Joe Nickel. The Roswell incident really started on July the 8th in 1947, when a wet behind the ears press officer put out a press release claiming the recovery of a quote-unquote flying disc. The local paper, the Roswell Daily Record, ran a story about how Mac Brazel had come into town with a collection of wreckage that had been strewn over a large area of his ranch. This wreckage consisted of sticks, tape, pieces of rubber, and foil paper. Were these the remains of a crash-flying saucer? The newspaper quickly printed an update with an explanation for it what had been It was a weather found. bulletin. And the material, sticks, tape, rubber, foiled paper, uh, were from a weather balloon, weather device. And that pretty much debunked the whole affair and was basically the death knell to that story. From a WOR news report. Elsewhere, the sport of seeing flying saucers or discs was left behind in the excitement over the discovery on the ground of a number of objects resembling discs or saucers. One object found on the ranch near Roswell, New Mexico, turned out to be a battered army weather balloon. But I have to pause here and say that the story that it was a weather balloon was not true. And here is a controversy in the whole Roswell story whether the people who said it was a weather balloon were sincerely mistaken or whether they knew what it really was and were putting out a false story. But what was actually found at Mac Brazel's ranch instead of a weather balloon, and I'll lower my voice here, was a secret United States government by balloon from something called Project Mogul. James McGahey. So the whole story ended at that point. The Air Force put out a statement saying it was just a weather balloon. Now, it was a bit more than a weather balloon in one sense. There was a secret classified project going on at Alamogordo called Project Mogul, which was actually top secret. Uh, a, a way to release some instrumentation into the high atmosphere at 60, 70, 80,000 feet, carried up by a number of regular weather balloons. In this case, it was like 23 weather balloons connected together in a 600-foot train. And they had been doing this for a while. And on one of their missions, they lost the weather balloon train when it came down. And it just so happened to come down on uh, the ranch at which the rancher found this debris and got drugged across the desert. And that was sort of the story. But anyway, the story was, was appropriately debunked. 
But the secrecy of Mogul begins to work its way into the story to make more of a conspiracy tale. But what happened, the whole story went underground, and then there were lots of rumors and various things around Roswell, and there's some other Air Force tests that happened years later, causing all kinds of effects of the local population believing this. And then finally, a UFO believer, Stanton Friedman, found the intel officer from the original event. This intel officer was Jesse Marcel, who was a major at Roswell Army Air Force Base in 1947. He was a TV repairman, and he told a slightly different story about what had happened those uh, 31 years before. Here's Jesse Marcel talking about the materials he saw from the crash site. It was not anything from this earth that I'm quite sure of. Because I was being an intelligence officer, I was familiar with just about every, all the materials used in aircraft and in our air travel. And then a number of books got uh, written about it and it became one of the most famous UFO cases in history. In 1980, Bill Moore and Charles Berlitz published a book called The Roswell Incident, which reintroduced the crash story to the public. The book not only tells the story, but introduces new elements that are now familiar, such as government cover-up and alien bodies. Though not credited as an author, Stanton Friedman was one of the primary researchers. Here he is talking about the work he and Moore did. I'm the original civilian investigator about the Roswell incident starting in 1978. Bill and I located 62 people within the next year and a half who were connected with the story. The first book came out in 1980. Crash at Corona laid out the claim that what was found on Mac Braswell's ranch was not a top-secret balloon, but a flying saucer, and that alien bodies were recovered. This was the basis on which the new Roswell mythology was formed and from which it grew. We get this elaborate story of the crashed flying saucer and alien bodies. And the alien bodies, this wasn't all done in one story, you know, these are added on. And the aliens were kept at some secret location. And pretty soon there's another crash site that we never heard of. And so on. This is just what happens over time. I got my doctorate in English literature and folklore. Folklorists know that given enough time, stories proliferate and told and retold and retold. And you will get these very different versions of a story that you can recognize, though that's the same story, but it's now a very different version of the same story. The Roswell crash dates back almost 75 years. It has been in the public eye for about 40. It is the most famous UFO case in history. As David Clark said earlier in this season, Really, what more can you say about Roswell that hasn't been said? But it turns out that people still have plenty to say about Roswell, and it fits with the dynamic that we looked at in the Rendlesham Forest incident. There remains no public consensus for what happened at Roswell. Whether the debris found there was from a secret balloon program 
or a crash flying saucer. And that leaves room for stories to be proffered, evaluated, and either absorbed into the folklore or forgotten. I talked to Ryan Sprague, the host of the Somewhere in the Skies podcast, about a number of topics for this season. And he told me about some work he had done for a television show about Roswell. And without trying to evaluate the merits of the evidence he saw and stories he heard, his experience shows how the Roswell story remains dynamic. I had the opportunity to do an independent investigation on Roswell. And this was for a television network. And I told them off the bat, I said, look, if there's nothing new that you've discovered or you want me to look into, I don't want to be a part of this because it's Roswell. People know this, they've seen it a million times, and I don't want to be connected to it if we're just rehashing the same stuff over and over. And to their credit, the researchers on this television program, working in conjunction with me and my co-investigator, a private investigator and Navy veteran, we found new evidence. We flew to Roswell, we met with a geologist who claimed to have debris from a possible crash of a craft. And uh, that was it for me, man. The minute this guy said he had physical evidence that he found presumably at the Roswell UFO crash site, I needed to see it. The guy with the evidence was Frank Kimbler, an associate professor of earth science at New Mexico Military Institute. He has appeared in a number of UFO documentaries and television shows. We went right to the military institute where this geologist taught, and he showed us exactly how he found the location where the crash happened. Kimbler claimed that he'd found metals a couple of feet beneath the surface of the crash site. He also said he'd found buttons consistent with army uniforms at the same time at the same site. And then he showed us the metals. At first glance, it looked like any other metal out there. So. That was, you know, a little, I guess, deflating for me. We brought it to a prominent aerospace lab in California and had it tested. And that's where things got really interesting. We got the results back. And while the results didn't scream alien, what you found is alien or extraterrestrial. The composition and the makeup of the metal that he claims is what he found in this desert It was manufactured and the alloys within this metal were things we can only dream of our aerospace labs using right now in 2020. So again, if this was found in the desert in 1940 or had been underground for 50 something years, it was what is being used on our most sophisticated aerospace technology and shuttles right now. So that begs the question, was this some highly secretive, advanced spacecraft that America was working on at the time? It had a crash. They needed to clean it up. Let's use this alien thing as a cover story, possibly. Or what is it? Or it could be from an alien spacecraft. Or it could be an advanced modern alloy that Kimbler only says he found in the desert. There was one other experience that I've never really shared with anyone. My investigative partner, Jennifer Marshall, and I, we were on break during filming for this television show. We're covering 
was it aliens? Was it this? And a guy in the town of Roswell, he comes up to us, he sees our camera crew, and uh, he starts asking questions, as anyone in a small town would when outsiders come in and you see cameras and all this. This guy asks what Ryan's angle on the show is going to be. Is he going to claim it was an extraterrestrial craft? Ryan says, not necessarily. And he's like, well, I could tell you this, it wasn't aliens. And that perked our interest. And we're like, okay, well, what, what do you think it was? And he said, look, everyone in this town knows everybody. We all had a friend or a family member who was directly involved with that incident. He said, for me, it was my great-grandfather. And I could tell you right now, it was not aliens. So, of course, we're going to press him on that. We're like, okay, well, what was it? What was it? And he went into this story that I'd heard in the past, but I didn't put much credence into it. This was a very early top secret program for spaceflight. I mean, we're talking the early, early days of high altitude tests and, and whatnot. So this guy told us that the American government were using individuals, children to be specific, who were runaways or who were um, left to the corners of society, whether they were mentally disabled or physically disabled. And they would use these kids, put them in these high altitude balloons or, or craft of some sort, and send them up to see how far they could survive in the atmosphere. And one of these things came down and that's what they found on the ranch in Roswell. This is a pretty dark story, obviously. And as Ryan says, it's a variation on an existing story about test flights and crashes and government cover-up of advanced weapon systems. And that's why so many military officials claimed to have seen bodies at the time and that they were they didn't look human. If we're going to go back to this idea that they could have been children, they were very small. Some of them had physical disabilities. So these are two stories from one person who is actively involved in looking at the UFO phenomenon. You'll notice that the stories point to different explanations for the crash, use different methods of authentication, and are mutually exclusive. One explanation points to either an advanced military craft of some sort or an alien vehicle and supports this story with a piece of alleged physical evidence. The other story takes the evidence that the wreckage was from a high-altitude balloon and adds the part about children being victimized in a terrible experiment. These explanations cannot both be true, but these are the kind of stories that keep the Roswell legend going, creating new narratives or adding twists to old narratives. My sense is that there's no pulling the Roswell incident back to the original story that was reported in 1947. The legend is too deeply ingrained in our culture at this point. There are innumerable books and episodes of television programs about Roswell, a series of young adult books about human-looking alien teenagers at Roswell High School that was turned into a TV show, the alien autopsy special of Fox Television, the alien autopsy version of the Child's Game Operation, an annual UFO festival, and on and on. 
It is the foundational event from which our perception of the government and UFOs sprang. And it's especially interesting that when the story resurfaced in 1980, it was brought back by civilian researchers. When Project Blue Book closed, and with it, the official government inquiry into UFOs, the impetus for investigation fell on people outside the government. And while civilians took the lead in the 1970s and 80s, the Air Force was not content to leave them to their own devices. And the efforts undertaken by the Air Force to undermine this civilian research has played a role in shaping our understanding of UFOs today. After the break... Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. One of the stranger aspects of the developing folklore was the part that the U.S. government, and in particular the Air Force, played in advancing disinformation about UFOs. We're going to look at some of the alleged instances of this disinformation campaign in the next few episodes. A lot of the insight we have into this effort comes from the tricky figure of Richard Doty. I'm Richard Doty. I'm a former intelligence officer with the uh, Air Force Office of Special Investigations. I worked in uh, intelligence from 1978 to 1988. I was in the regular Air Force for four years. I went to college. After college, I was recruited in the intelligence service, and I worked at Kirtland Air Force Base here in Albuquerque. I worked at DET-3 Flight Test Center in what you call, what they call Area 51 in Nevada. The Air Force Office of Special Investigations is the criminal investigative arm of the United States Air Force. They investigate criminal, activities, uh, fraud activities, and counterintelligence, counterespionage. And that's what I did. I did exclusively just counterintelligence and counterespionage for uh, AFOSI. 
Richard Doty is an important figure in our story because he admittedly passed disinformation to the UFO community in the 1980s, and this disinformation became part of the greater UFO narrative. But when listening to him, it's very important to remember that his job was to lie to people about UFOs, and there's no reason to believe that he's telling the truth now. I interviewed him over the course of about two hours about a number of subjects and found that when he was talking about people that he knew and operations he was involved in, what he said often lined up with what others involved in these incidents have written or said. When the conversation strayed into the subject of actual UFOs and alien contact, I definitely felt that he was promoting the same false stories that he has for decades. So. As we look at some of these intrigues, particularly in the 1980s, I want to be very clear that many of the claims that he makes are in keeping with his past as an agent of disinformation. And, as we talked about earlier in the season, whether the story he is telling is factual or not is less important than the story itself. But don't take his claims about aliens as factual. With that said, I didn't ask Rick specifically about Roswell, but it came up when I asked him about how he was oriented to his job infiltrating the UFO community. At the time, he was stationed at Kirtland Air Force Base in Albuquerque, New Mexico, an enormous facility encompassing about 80 square miles. While stationed at Kirtland, there was an a incident that occurred in a remote secretive area of the base, and it fell within my purview of counterintelligence operation. So I, I didn't have a proper clearance to have access to certain information pertaining to this. So I was then briefed into the program and the program involved the United States government's knowledge and contacts with extraterrestrials, the investigation of UFO activities on or near a base or, or all, all over the United States. It was a highly classified program I had to get a special clearance for it. The films and the briefings that we obtained, it was just, wasn't just me, there were some others in the room when we were being briefed, pertained to the United States' involvement with ETs and UFOs from 1947 on. And this was in 1978, so the briefing brought us right up to the, the current 1978 at that point. And that um, explained to us that Roswell happened, the incident in Roswell happened, there were two crashes, one at Corona, New Mexico, which was north of Roswell, and a second one out, out west of Magdalena, Polonis Peak, which was uh, south of Horse Mesa. The Roswell, or the Corona crash, uh, was found almost immediately in July of 1947, but the other crash in the uh, western part of New Mexico wasn't found until 1949. The UFO crashed in a very, very remote area of New Mexico, and no one really had access to that area. In 1949, a rancher was taking his cows to a higher pasture, and he located it. In 47, we, the Army was involved in recovering a craft that crashed in Cronin, New Mexico, with uh, four bodies, four dead bodies of ETs, and one live body. That live creature found in the craft. It was later called by the government an extraterrestrial biological entity, or EBA. 
and he remained in captivity at Los Alamos until 1952 when he died. So this will be the beginning of a pattern. Doty takes ideas that are already out there in the UFO culture, the Roswell crash, the recovery of bodies, even the existence of a live ET, and puts them in an official context, in this case, a top-secret Air Force briefing. Doty says he was briefed at Kirtland Air Force Base in 1978 about the government's involvement with UFOs. In 1977 or 78, a man who lived just outside the base, named Paul Benowitz, started seeing some strange lights in the night sky. Author of the 2005 book Project Beta, Greg Bishop. Paul Benowitz was an electrical physicist. He had his own business in Albuquerque, New Mexico. It still exists. He's deceased now. The business is called Thunder Scientific, and it is located just outside Kirtland Air Force Base. He had a government contract. He made sensors and humidity sensors and other types of sensors. Paul lived in the Four Hills area of Albuquerque, which is right outside Kirtland Air Force Base. His backyard butted up against the perimeter of the base. You can see the most of the north part of the uh, Kirtland Air Force Base from his house, from his, his top deck porch in Albuquerque. He'd go out on his porch at night near the Air Force Base and he could see lights flying around. So he started making films of these. And I think some video, but this was 1978 when this started, or 77, so most things were done on film. So they had eight millimeter film, mostly, of these lights lifting up off the ground and then taking off and going behind this mountain. Now, not far from where the perimeter is located is a place called Manzano Storage Area. It was one of the largest nuclear weapon storage areas in the United States, probably in the free world. And there were other classified things at Manzano. And this isn't classified anymore. Paul placed some electronic sensors outside on his patio facing Manzano. And he was picking up strange signals. Uh, He was also photographing airplanes, flying military airplanes taking off from Kirtland Air Force Base. He was taking all sorts of pictures. Paul was a Navy World War II veteran, uh, highly decorated. He felt that there was some danger to the base. Benowitz became convinced that these lights that he was filming were, in fact, advanced vehicles being piloted by extraterrestrials. In 1980, worried that these UFOs posed a serious threat to the base, Benowitz got in touch with Kirtland Security. So they said, well, this is interesting. So they called him in and said, so what are you seeing? And he stood there in front of a whole bunch of base security people and colonels and the guy that ran the base and told them what he was seeing, you know, because they knew what it was, but they wanted to know what he knew. One, because they didn't think anybody was watching. And two, because if he's talking to anybody, they wanted to know who those people were, any possibly foreign nationals or somebody that just wasn't supposed to be seeing that stuff. So they listened to his report. As his report went on, security staff would leave the room as they realized that what Benowitz was talking about was not under their purview. So the two or three people that were left that had something to worry about, about what he was seeing, told him, this is very interesting, Paul. Why don't you keep telling us what's going on? We want to keep in touch with you. This is important to national security, etc." What they did not say was, don't worry about it. 
We know what you're seeing, and they are not a threat. Just go on about your life and don't worry about it anymore. So Benowitz kept at it. So he continued to film these things, and he also built a uh, radio receiver and was starting to pick up signals, which he thought were, were UFO or alien transmissions. But apparently what they really were were coded transmissions being used to either control weapons or who knows what. It's basically electronically coded. And this is before there was digital encoding, decoding, all that. They'd spent tons of money to develop this. And he's just picking it up and started to figure out what the uh, messages were saying, but he didn't interpret them in the way that, that, that uh, made sense as weapon systems. He interpreted them as, as alien transmissions. Kirtland Security eventually decided that Benowitz needed to be more carefully monitored. They assigned a security person from the Air Force Office of Special Investigations to basically, I guess, his contact or case officer or whatever, and that was Richard Doty. So Doty not only listened to what he said, he also encouraged his his reporting and encouraged, I think, some of his delusions about being alien because they, they wanted him to stay interested, but they didn't want him to know what was going on. If he wants to think it's aliens, that's fine. And so as far as Paul Benowitz goes, that was a, a super operation by the government. And it wasn't just my operation. It was the government that planned that operation. And if you look back at what Paul did and what Paul found out and the entire history of the Paul Benowitz incident and look at it at a rational, with an open mind, most patriotic Americans would say, you did what you had to do, and I did what I had to do. The government did what we had to do to prevent Paul from delving into something that was highly, highly classified at that point. Next time on Strange Arrivals. Strange Arrivals is a production of iHeart 3D Audio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey. This episode was written and hosted by Toby Ball and produced by Miranda Hawkins and Josh Thane with executive producers Alex Williams, Matt Frederick, and Aaron Mankey. And special thanks to Wendy Connors, creator of the Faded Discs archive of UFO-related audio on archive.org. Learn more about Strange Rivals over at grimandmild.com. And find more podcasts from iHeartRadio by visiting the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. You never want to find yourself out on the water fishing without the essentials. So it's best to always pack a Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie to protect against the sun. I mean, it provides great protection, and it's really breathable so you don't get hot. That's a win-win. Columbia PFG has a lot of great gear. So before you head out on the water, head over to Columbia.com slash PFG to shop their performance fishing gear. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring.